I want to invite you this morning to participate in a thought experiment for a moment. And uh, the name of this uh, thought experiment is, uh, Who Should We Exclude from the Church? So I'll put out a few groups. Should we exclude Jewish people or Muslims or black people or white people? Should we exclude Latinos or undocumented workers? Should we exclude children under five whose parents came to America seeking asylum from life-threatening environments and are now in detention centers separate from their parents? Should we exclude gay people or transgender people or straight cisgender people? Who should we exclude? Should we exclude people who don't believe in God or people who do believe in God or agnostics or people who just don't care one way or the other? Should we exclude Republicans or Democrats or communists or anarchists? So who should we exclude? So I know that in a way these questions might seem kind of silly to many of us because almost everyone knows that we don't exclude any of these people. And our mission statement says we are dedicated to loving inclusively. That's, that's part of our mission statement. Our bylaws, by the way, say that to join the church, you must be at least 14 years old. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. So does that mean we exclude kids under 14? I, I don't think we do. We just welcome them in a different way into our classes. What about kids who make noise during Sunday services? What if a kid starts fussing or crying? See, this is a different kind of situation. Uh, and it requires both our hearts and minds to look at some of these other kinds of situations. What if somebody gets up and starts yelling during the service? Just starts yelling and maybe very angry. Do we exclude them in some way? We don't exclude people because of any ethnic category or belief or any other category, but we, there are limits on behavior. You can't be disruptive or violate the peace of the church. There are things you cannot do in this church, although I must say I cannot give you an exact list of what they are. I could probably start a list, but I don't know exactly what they are. <clears throat> Well, so what if the person making too much noise is one of our own kids, one of our adorable, charming, lovable kids? Is it a, that's a an un, more unclear thing. I noticed a parent walked the child out this morning. What an interesting thing. Should we try to distract them or maybe just tolerate 
their behavior? This is a question we are actually thinking about in our churches, the relationship between the generations. And we are totally clear that we want to love our adorable, charming, lovable kids, even if momentarily they do something that's not adorable. How to include, so I'm saying it's not always obvious how to include everyone. It's obvious that we want to. That's the part that we don't have any uh, concerns about, but it's not always obvious how to do that. But we have consciously chosen to be an inclusive community. And I cannot imagine our church not being inclusive. I cannot imagine that and still being our church. I, it, I don't think you can have those two things together. However, it's not always absolutely clear how to do that in practice. And I know that we will keep working on that and try to achieve that ideal the best we can. Our beloved conversations program is part of that. There, there are many ways we ponder and work on how we can be truly inclusive. So one of the projects we've adopted this year is to think seriously and lovingly about the relationship between the generations in our church. I like what Amy said in her story. The kids said, you, uh, you, we are the most important because we are the future of the church. Today's intergenerational birthday party is one of the events that's come out of this kind of thinking. So, you are invited to your birthday party today and I think you will have fun. So, you may say, yeah, but everybody has a birthday, so that means everyone is invited. And that is our working assumption, that everyone is always invited. That's, that's, that's the way we look at it. How about people we really find distasteful? I don't know if there's anybody like that in your life. How about politicians we don't like? Are they invited to the birthday party? There was a buzz in the audience. <laughs> what are they saying out there? I wish you all would use a mic when you do that. How about dictators? or people who have committed violent crimes, or people who lead white supremacist hate groups. Are they invited? How do we love inclusively when there are people who really seem to be wrong in some profound way? How do we handle that? One of the things we could do is we could amend the mission statement of our church to say we love inclusively except for real jerks. <laughs> we have a congregational meeting today. Someone could make that motion if they want to. Um, we could do that. Now, one of the problems with that is that the mission statement no longer really flows nicely when you add that in there. <laughs> kind of interrupts the poetry of it. But maybe we could work on the, the wording. So 
even so, would we all agree about who would be in and who would be out? I don't know if we could make that agreement. I hope no one will bring it up. So forget that I said that. Yeah. <laughs> or perhaps we'll just continue to say that part of our mission is to love inclusively and just face up to the fact that it is sometimes very difficult to live up to that ideal and sometimes even to understand what that ideal uh, requires of us. Uh, somebody, a White Sox fan, said, uh, go Sox to, this morning. To, you know, in Chicago, <laughs> there are fights between Cubs fans and Sox. As a baseball fan, I am embarrassed about that because I don't think it's loving inclusively. Anyway. So what do we do with people who are just not lovable or who may be seriously dangerous to be with, maybe physically dangerous or dangerous in some other way. I love you guy, by the way. <laughs> it's my Sox fan friend. I want to give a couple of examples of people who I think point to the way to how to handle this problem. So I'll throw out these examples to you for your consideration. One of them is Nelson Mandela, the South African leader who brought freedom to his country, freedom from the racist system of apartheid. Mandela spent 27 years in prison for his participation in the freedom movement. And most of that time he spent on an island off the coast of uh, Cape Town, South Africa, an island called Robben Island, which was a penal colony. It was just a prison, and they sent all these freedom fighters out to Robben Island to serve their sentences, which, by the way, turned out to be a horrible mistake on the part of the government because they just organized together the whole time, and they had communication going back and forth to the shore, and they kept organizing the resistance. Anyway, I had the memorable experience of touring Robben Island during the 1999 Parliament of the World's Religions and also got to hear Mandela speak because he spoke to the Parliament. And that is truly one of the great experiences of my life. It really is. One of the things that is not often mentioned about Mandela is that in order to put an end to apartheid in South Africa, he worked closely with the leader of the racist apartheid system, F.W. de Klerk was his name. You may remember that name, but you may not, because he's not, that, not nearly as famous as Mandela. He was the leader of the apartheid government, and Mandela negotiated with him over years. Part of the time he negotiated, he was in the prison in Robben Island, still sending messages back and forth. And at some point, the two of them agreed to end apartheid in South Africa. And you may not remember, but they both got the Nobel Prize. Mandela, the freedom fighter, and de Klerk, the head of the apartheid government. They worked it out. Mandela, even after he got out of prison, said he had no desire for revenge against the oppressors, and he became good friends with many of the guards of the prison camp, and their friendship went on for years after that. 
So this is a, fan, uh, a fantastically interesting bit of life, I think, that the two of these guys worked out the freedom plan for South Africa and agreed on it and changed that country totally. So there's one interesting example. Another one who you may have already guessed I might talk about is Martin Luther King, who has a similar story. And King would often be asked if he hated the racists. And King would say, invariably, that the way he understood it and understood his role in the universe is that he loved everyone, including the oppressors. And that what nonviolence was about was changing the mind of the oppressor so that the oppressor would come around to seeing the value of every person. That was the purpose of the marches, was to change enough people, but even the worst of them. And he would not move from that position. It may have been a very unlikely goal, but that is the way King always framed it. And so these two political leaders thought that way, and they are the, among the most successful change agents in modern history. Two of the most successful at changing the world. Someone from our UU tradition who I think exemplifies this in a slightly different way is Clara Barton the founder of the American Red Cross. And Claire Barton was a universalist, and you can read in some of her writings, uh, her speaking about that. And the Red Cross has always had the policy that everyone will be healed, that they can heal. Without, for example, in a war situation, they will give the same healing to both sides. They do not discriminate between who are the good people and who are the bad people. They just heal everybody they can. And Clara Barton, I think, is an example of that. And I personally do not think it's an accident that she was a universalist and became part of that movement that, that espouses the philosophy of healing everyone regardless of who they are. I, I think that is uh, not an accident. So in order to solve this problem, you know, it's easy to love people who are lovable. <clears throat> Although actually that's not always true either. <clears throat> but this problem of loving the unlovable, <clears throat> I think really is a two-step process. And one of the things about these two steps is you have to do them at the same time. So the first step is to love the oppressor. And Martin Luther King talks about this and he says, it's not like, oh my gosh, I love you. That's, that's not it. It's a much tougher, uh, he said it's not some kind of bosh. That was the word he said. It's a deep, powerful, abiding love for all people. And the oppressor is part of that from the point of view of King and Mandela and from the Red Cross's point of view, it doesn't matter which one is which. And so 
We do that in a non-demonizing kind of way. And then number two is at the same time to speak and act forcefully, non-violently for what we believe is right. To come out strongly for what we believe is right in a situation for human rights or civil rights or justice for women who say they have been raped or for kids kept in a detention center at the borders segregated from their parents, for anyone treated unjustly to speak that out strongly and with all our ability to do so while at the same time not demonizing the oppressor, but seeing in the oppressor the possibility of change. So, these are the two things to do simultaneously. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time. So, I think the same is true with anyone we have serious disagreement with. If we demonize the other because of their category or any other reason, the chance for progress is slim. But if we cave in on our principles, then it is also true that the chances for progress are slim. So we have to be able to do both of those. At least we have examples of that in history of some of the uh, most amazing change agents we know of. Especially in the church, I think we can do these things simultaneously. I'm completely confident about it because just about everyone in the church is completely lovable anyway. <laughs> I cannot think of any exceptions. Surely we could work out any problems we might encounter with an ongoing relationship of caring and respect. I will not ask you this morning to climb the mountain of loving everyone in politics. It might just be too much to ask. But that is what Mandela and King did and said that that was the way out, while at the same time being very forceful leaders for their causes. I think this one way to think about loving inclusively is a powerful model. It is actually a spiritual discipline. It is not for the faint-hearted. We live in difficult and perilous times. Everybody knows that. We need serious, sweeping change. There are seemingly unlovable people all around many of them with far more power than they have the wisdom to know what to do with. It is not clear where this story will lead and success is not guaranteed. But I do believe that love is the best path we have and I think it is right we have it in our mission statement saying loving inclusively. I think those are the right words. It's not a soft, gushy, fawning, oh, I love you so much. It's not that kind of love that will work in every case. And it won't even make sense in every case. But it'll be a principle, honest, truth-telling, mobilized, serious business, marching for justice kind of love.
love that seeks transformation, love that is willing to confront. But like the old universalism that Clara Barton was part of, it's a love that doesn't seek to torture the opponents into an everlasting lake of fire, but to ultimately, ultimately, if possible, bring everyone to the great banquet, to bring everyone to the birthday party where they get the best present of all, a peaceful, caring place to live and love. So may it be for us.